it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show coming to you from our Washington, D.C. Tony Snow Studios at Fox News Channel's bureau here in the nation's capital. Thank you very much for tuning in every single weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time. We truly do appreciate it. And if you can't listen live, we have a podcast as well. All of the information you need about all of the above is at GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. GuyBensonShow.com. There's also FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got some options there. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Baer on that panel, probably around 645 Eastern time. So hope to see you on Fox News Channel this evening. Here on the radio, this is the lineup that we have in store for you. Kimberly Strassel of The Wall Street Journal, one of my favorites. She will be here later on this hour talking about the January 6th committee with some ongoing hearings right now. We're keeping an eye on that going on for the last hour plus. And I believe the committee has announced additional hearings that they are now planning to add to the schedule. So we'll ask Kimberly about that. She's got a new column out about political violence, and I look forward to that conversation. Juan Williams will be here coming up in the next hour, our friend from the other side of the ideological spectrum. He and I were on Kennedy last night together And we had some good-natured sparring on a few issues, and I'm sure we will have some of the same here today. Also, in our final hour, someone called Kent Strang, who works for a group called Americans for Prosperity, he's going to join us to talk about an initiative at AFP that I think is genius. It's a conservative group, and they're going around all across the country to these planned events at gas stations where they are for a couple hours – spending their organization's money to subsidize the cost of gasoline down to the amount that it was when Joe Biden first became president, which is less than half of what it is today. So they tell the local media, they tell some local politicians, and then people go crazy from what I've heard. And we'll get details from him where they will line up block after block after block, sometimes for miles to get the more affordable gasoline. And then there's a lesson when you get to the pump about supply, demand, government policies, and the Biden administration. And they are picking certain communities, and they're doing this across the nation and reminding people it wasn't that long ago where gas was just over two bucks a gallon. We're a long way from that point now, and I just think it's a very clever move. It's a stunt, obviously, but I think it's a stunt that's illustrating something. I want to know how people are reacting. How are liberals reacting? Who might be indignant at the political point being made, but also want the cheaper gas? (laughs) 
We will ask Kent of Americans for Prosperity about that a little bit later on in the show. We will also bring you an update out of Uvalde, Texas, where there have been some stunning developments about the law enforcement response to that school shooting. And it feels like every time we talk about this, it gets worse. And that will be the case again here today. New details, new revelations. And yes, somehow this horrible situation does get worse. And whether you are left, right, center, no matter where you stand on guns, no matter where you stand on the police. I think every American has very good reason to be very upset about what we're learning It was horrible enough, horrific enough. Then you pile the failures on top of it and then the cover-ups. Just awful. We'll get into those details a bit later on here on the show today. I do want to begin, however, on the issue of the economy, on the issue of gas prices, since we were just talking about that conservative group subsidizing gas prices in strategic locations around the country. Let's talk about that broader issue Just yesterday here on the show, we played a soundbite of President Biden. He had sort of the day off. It was a national holiday for Juneteenth. So he was at the beach in Delaware. He spends a lot of time there, obviously. We were here on the air doing the show, and Biden did a quick little gaggle with reporters with the ocean roaring in the background. And the clip that we played for you was him scolding a reporter for asking him about the increased likelihood of recession, which is what many experts are now adjusting their expectations and their projections to reflect exactly that likelihood or at least that increased likelihood. The Wall Street Journal survey of economists of economists now have almost 50 percent of those economists expecting within the next year a recession. We've talked about Larry Summers, the former Treasury secretary, what his expectation is and why. Based on the current economic conditions where you look at the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, when they are both at a certain threshold or above or below that threshold at the same time, when you've got that combination of factors within the last 70 to 80 years, Every single time a recession has followed, and that is where we are right now. Those thresholds have been breached on both of those metrics. So whether it's this year or next year or maybe 24, who knows? And it's not guaranteed to happen, but it seems more likely than not. That is Larry Summers' belief. That is his estimation. That is his assessment. And I remind you, he was absolutely right about inflation. While many sort of Pollyannish people, head in the sand folks in his own party, were dead wrong about it. So he has a little bit more credibility on this stuff than certainly the Biden team does. So Biden was cranky. Someone asked him about it. Here's what that sounded like in case you missed it yesterday. Cut one. Not the majority of them aren't saying that. Come on, don't make things up, okay? Now you sound like a Republican politician. I'm joking. That was a joke. That was a joke. But all kidding aside, no, I don't think it is. There's nothing inevitable about a recession. You quickly adds, that was a joke. I'm joking. Do you hear the big laugh from everyone? It wasn't a joke. He was sort of lashing out because he recognizes his presidency is being hobbled by his own failures on a bunch of fronts, including inflation. And the next step could very well be recession, 
which would probably put a dagger in the presidency, especially depending on how deep that recession could be and what the timing might look like. Don't make things up, he said. Now you're sounding like a Republican politician. I'm joking. That's a joke. A joke that no one laughed at. But something that he went on to say that's getting a little bit less attention is the spin that he's putting on the issue right now of gas prices and high costs on energy, where he tried to take some aphorism that he said he learned from his mother and explain actually that in some ways the pain that Americans are experiencing right now at gas pumps could be a good thing cut to. My dear mother used to have an expression, if anything lousy, something good will happen if you look hard enough for it. We have a chance here to make a fundamental turn toward renewable energy, electric vehicles, and, and not just electric vehicles, but across the board. And, uh, and that's something we should be, my team is going to be sitting down with the CEOs of the major oil companies this week and uh, try to give an explanation how they justify making $35 billion in the first quarter. Are you planning to sit down with oil and gas CEOs, no. Mr. President? Why, why is that, sir? Because my team's going to do that. You've got the relaxing but very loud sound of the sea in the background as you are hearing that very not relaxing sentiment from the president of the United States. At the very end, he's like, I'm going to meet. My team's going to meet with the oil CEOs to demand answers because that's part of their excuse here, right? The greedy, greedy oil companies. We dealt with that at some length yesterday. It's just a red herring. It's desperate. It's flailing. People don't believe it. Poll after poll shows that people are blaming Biden. In fact, there was a new poll that I wrote up today at townhall.com that shows even most Democrats blame Biden and his policies on the inflation front more than any of the scapegoats that he's throwing out and tossing out into public discussion. You say, yeah, my team's going to meet with them. I'm not going to meet with them. My team is. All right, fine. But he said, my dear mother used to have an expression that when something was lousy, You have to look hard enough for something good that will come out of it. I'm paraphrasing. He said, we have a chance here to make a fundamental turn toward renewable energy, electric cars and the like. So the green revolution, he said, that's something we should be doing. The fundamental turn, he looks at this moment as an opportunity, a catalyst for this fundamental turn to a green future. That's the good element in all of this, he thinks, amid the lousiness for the American people who can't afford this. And it reminds me of something that he just said back in May in Cut 4. Remember the incredible transition? When it comes to the gas prices, uh, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that, God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger and less reliant on fossil fuels when this is over. Most Americans view this as an unalloyed bad. This is painful for them. They can't afford it. The cost of doing everything is going up and up and up. But there is this belief in progressive politics that the pain's actually good for us because we need to get off of fossil fuels and onto this future. And that's why the president's talking about incredible transitions and fundamental turns. And trying to basically argue, well, the good news is this. 
And that goes to their dogma. They want this transition. The pain is actually a feature, not a bug. They just wish the pain weren't quite so bad, so close to an election. That's the problem that they're facing. If a lot of them are honest, if the, you know, the true believers in all the climate stuff and all the shifting to the future, they would say, yeah, it's not great and we might lose an election or even two, but we're actually kind of glad this is happening. They can't quite say that out loud. But if Biden wants to use these phrases like incredible transition or fundamental turn, why is he also blaming Putin and the oil companies and the out of power Republicans? Why do you need scapegoats for good news? Isn't this good news in some ways? That's what he's telling us partially. That's why it's also incoherent. It is a big political problem for them, so they can't celebrate it. But in some ways, it's kind of celebratory and worthy of celebration because of this transition to green that they want to make that Biden keeps talking about. But they can't talk about that in a good way or else he would congratulate Putin and the Republicans and the oil companies. Thank you for helping us drive up the prices because we need to do this as a country for the planet. He can't articulate that because it would be political suicide, but that represents really the cross current, the dilemma that these progressives are dealing with. And again, I've played this montage before. I think we will play it probably out into the future any number of times. But one of the arguments that at least we're getting in the near term, even though the Biden folks and the Democrats and the progressives keep saying, oh, yes, we want the oil companies to be basically out of business in five to 10 years. That was the energy secretary The other day on national television. Oh, yeah, five to ten years. That's true. But now they better be patriots and bring the cost down. These greedy people. We want them to do all these things and jump through hoops to help. Ease some of the pain this exact moment. But understand and make no mistake, we want them gone not long from now. And you think the industry is listening to that and maybe baking that admission into their business decisions? Obviously, they are. But this isn't all some sort of accident when conservatives say that the Biden administration, the Democrats are openly hostile to American domestic energy production. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a smear. It's not something that we've invented for political reasons. It's not some blame game that we've dreamed up just to fit the current moment. It's true. And don't take my word for it. Listen to Joe Biden as he was seeking the nomination of his party for the presidency and then the presidency itself. This was a campaign promise. The hostility to domestic oil production and energy production here at home was a campaign promise of Joe Biden that he made over and over again. Cut five. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuel. What about, say, stopping fracking and stopping new pipeline infrastructure? No more, no new fracking. We are going to get rid of fossil fuels. I've argued against any more oil drilling or gas drilling on federal lands. No one's going to build a coal-fired plant again, and we're going to get rid of the ones we have now. Have a transition from the oil industry, yes. Would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth 
even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? The answer is yes. His words. Those are his words. We have a supply problem right now. It's hurting Americans. And that right there, what you just heard, that is his position on our supply problem, which is why all the other misdirection is just noise and part of the reason why so few people are buying the excuses they shouldn't. The Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Tuesday edition. We will be right back. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So we're supposed to protect you against Russia, but they're paying billions of dollars to Russia. And I think that's very inappropriate. And the former chancellor of Germany is the head of the pipeline company that's supplying the gas. Uh, Ultimately, Germany will have almost 70 percent of their country controlled by Russia with natural gas. So you tell me, is that appropriate? I mean, we've been complaining about this from the time I got in. It should have never been allowed to have happened. But Germany is totally controlled by Russia. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And that was a flashback to 2018. President Trump, and this has made the rounds again, it's resurfaced in light of what's happening right now in the world and over in Europe. Trump had given a speech at the U.N. in 2018 talking about the pipeline, which the Russians wanted badly. Putin wanted it. Germany wanted it, too. But the Trump administration stopped it. And Trump was scolding the Germans about becoming beholden to the Russians and really held captive by the Russians on energy. And the cameras cut to the German delegation in the hall, and they were smirking and rolling their eyes and laughing at Trump. And a lot of people here at home said, oh, look, our allies are laughing at our president because he's spouting off again. Well, look at what's happening right now. From CNBC, Germany plans to fire up coal plants as Russia throttles gas supplies. A really tight winter coming up, the government's warning. So they're actually firing up coal plants, which are even dirtier, because the Russians are playing games with their fuel for political reasons. The Gazprom CEO in Russia saying, our product, our rules. And the Germans are like, "Uh uh-oh, maybe they should have listened to our former president. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the show, thank you for listening, GuyBensonShow.com, for all of your program needs, including that free podcast on demand every day. And joining us now is Kimberly Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal, their editorial page, and a Fox News contributor. 
She's the author of multiple best-selling books, including Resistance at All Costs. And Kim, it's good to have you back here. Guy, it is always great to be with you. I am eager to chat with you about your most recent column, The Forest for the January 6th Trees. So right now on Fox News and our competitors we see across the board, they are covering the January 6th hearings. I saw Adam Schiff just gave a closing statement. I'm not really sure that he's the most credible person to have on any of these committees, but there he is. And now it's shifted over to Liz Cheney on the Republican side. And I've been keeping tabs on some of what has been presented today. And as has been the case throughout this process, at least in my estimation, Kim, there's ugly stuff here that is really not excusable or defensible on the part of the former president and his campaign and some of these lawyers around him as they were trying to undo the results of the last election. And they failed in that effort. I just wonder, as you have watched these hearings or at least read about them, what are your takeaways? How do you feel about them? And then we can start to shift over to the point that you're making in your latest column, uh, sort of branching out from just the focus on January 6th. Yeah, sure. I've been watching the January 6th, too, pretty closely, the hearings pretty closely. And I I guess the way I would think of it is I think that they have served as a very good reminder with some additional details of the pretty indefensible actions, as you say, that were taken by Trump and his team in the lead up. And then the also the failure to act while this riot was unfolding. And some of those details have been really important. They fill in some blanks. At the same time, I feel as though the broad arc of this, the broad narrative, is something that we've kind of had since the days following January 6th. We, I remember a, it was only a few days after all of this happened. The Washington Post had a story detailing how long the president just sat there despite all of these people calling him and exhorting him to stand up and say something and do something to stop this, and he wouldn't do it. So we're now getting more information about all of that. Uh, Do I feel as though any of it has cosmically changed my understanding of what happened? No, but, you know, I do think that there is some merit to presenting some of this information. Yeah, and I think that we had the immediate aftermath and response. Then we had the impeachment and the impeachment trial where we got a lot more of this stuff. And now it feels like kind of like the third Trump impeachment trial almost is, is how this feels to me. And I'm not saying that any of this is good. A lot of it is quite bad. And in fact, they were again chatting with Brad Raffensperger, who's the secretary of state in Georgia, testifying exactly what he said. Of course, there was that phone call where Trump was pressuring him to find votes, find ballots, the certain number that he felt like he needed to take the lead in the state. This whole business about alternate slates of electors and the the Eastman memo, which was just crazy at the time. It was all very bad. And I think some Republican complaints about the committee are actually the fault of Republicans who are refusing really to participate. Kevin McCarthy didn't get all of his people that he requested onto the committee, so he pulled them all off. And so as a result, there's sort of no one offering any other side to this stuff. Uh, There was a commission offered that would have been bipartisan. The Republicans rejected that. I'm not really going along with the overall right-wing narrative on this committee, but I also tend to agree with you that 
I am sometimes again outraged by what I see, but not in a new way. It's as bad as I thought it was at the time, if that makes sense. And that's that's not yeah. an excuse. It's just sort of how I feel. It, it, it does make sense. I guess here are my two additional concerns with this is that I think the details are very informative, a lot of them. Um, but I also feel as though one of the purposes of this committee, which Democrats have been able to do because Republicans, uh, by and large, or at least those who have a different view on some of this, did not take part. But there's a, a real effort, which you see by Schiff and others, to portray the entire Republican movement is somehow extremist um, and unhinged, uh, radical. And I, I kind of I, – I would love to kind of push back on that because there's a political element of this, which is really showing through. This is also about the midterms. Um, they also seem to be spending a great deal of time laying the groundwork for a potential criminal referral of Donald Trump and potentially others to the Department of Justice. For legal reasons, I think that that's a very hard hard sell and not necessarily something Congress should be doing, um, uh, especially when we have and a they lot actually of other sound, And they sound split on whether that's what they want the goal ultimately to be. That's been some of the reporting. There's some dissension within the ranks on that. And by the way, they just gaveled out, it looks like, for the day. So they are in adjournment. They're going to have additional conversations and hearings uh, moving forward here. There was one quote from Rudy Giuliani that was presented today talking about the supposed stolen nature of the election. And Rudy had said, quote, we've got lots of theories. We just don't have any evidence. That was a quote from Rudy. And Mick Mulvaney, the former Trump chief of staff at the White House, said that, ladies and gentlemen, was the head of the president's legal team. Again, that seems significant. It goes to my point that if they had proof of these outlandish claims, they could have offered it in court. They failed to do so over and over and over again, which is why I just completely reject this notion that the election was stolen, that Biden's win was illegitimate. Now, with that being stipulated, and I think it's important to stipulate it, Kim, you are also sort of drawing attention to some of the, shall we say, selective attention and outrage to political violence in our media, among Democrats, within sort of the the ruling class, where some examples of it are a grave concern and a deep threat to the republic itself, whereas other instances and manifestations of political violence are basically ignored, indulged, even winked at. Right. This is the off-key part of these hearings to me, which is, again, great that we're having some details. But there's very much a political desire to present all of this is coming from one side, you know, all the video and see, look, this is what this is what the Republican Party has become. And the real risk to the Republic guy is that, in fact, we are seeing rising levels of political violence on all sides um, and in growing frequency as well, too. We have had just in the in the past a uh, month or so ever since the leak of the draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade from the Supreme Court. Uh, we've had at least 24 attacks on pregnancy centers and pro-life groups. Some of them have been firebombed. Um, there have been threats left on the doors. Uh, we obviously in recent weeks had an attempted assassination attempt on Justice Brett Kavanaugh. 
Um, this obviously follows shootings of you know, the congressional baseball practice in 2017, Charlottesville, Antifa, uh, uh, shootings in synagogues, um, the assassination of cops. Um, we're increasingly getting a number of people on the fringe in both parties who believe that the answer to their political frustrations is to engage in violence. And we do not have enough politicians broadly calling attention to that or indeed setting the example saying enough. We cannot tolerate this in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, what the media will say and others will point out about January 6th is that political violence was particularly egregious in nature because of how many people took place in that riot or took part rather in that riot. And the purpose of the riot was to interrupt the process that is sacred in this country of the transition of power that has to be peaceful in America. And so I think that's a fair point. It was especially bad. But you also then, Kim, get people who are willing to excuse for the entire summer leading up to the election or sort of turn away and avert their eyes to a lot of violence that played out across the country. The president of the United States, the current one, has still not personally condemned the assassination plot against the Supreme Court justice that you just mentioned. It just really does feel like half of it is ignored, memory hold, downplayed. We actually gave an example. There's a Democratic member of Congress who was shot in the line of duty, if you will, Back in the 70s, when she was a political staffer in the Jonestown massacre, which is a wild story. If people have never heard of it, you should look it up. It's just a crazy thing that happened. She gave a speech last week, I believe, on the floor saying that she thought she was the only member of the House who had been targeted with gun violence. Just forgetting about the Scalise shooting and, and that attempted mass assassination because it was given such short shrift by the people who – are aghast by this stuff, but only really loudly aghast some of the time. And I think it's hard to take them seriously. It's also hard to take Democrats seriously when they're this angry about January 6th and then their political operations are going and meddling in Republican primaries to try to boost conspiracy theorists on this stuff because they think it would be easier to beat them in the fall. It's either a threat to democracy or it's not. And some of the actions feel like they don't even believe what they're saying themselves. Right. And part of this and what's so frustrating about it to me, Guy, is it is so nakedly political. As you just said, there are those attempts, for instance, uh, to boost certain uh, more fringe candidates in some of these Republican primaries. But they're also just think about what they're doing writ large, which is coming straight from the White House. They're dealing with all of these problems like inflation and shortages and baby formula and et cetera, and their approval ratings are in the dump. And all the newspapers wrote about how they had this change of strategy about three weeks ago or a month ago where the president was now going to uh, campaign on the notion that his opponents are ultra mega Republicans and therefore attempting to strip away your liberties and take away your right to vote and take away everything that you value in the world. Now, when you're hearing uh, prominent political figures essentially saying that they are running against extremists who are going to take things away from you that are central to your life and livelihood, that's kind of a call for people to get far more aggressive in how they engage in politics. And it's, it's adding to this threat of political violence. It's not calming things down. We need to be having a discussion about how we debate ideas 
and realize we can disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, on that front, to your point about the pivot that they're trying to make, it's just not working, right? That's that's the one sort of relieving, reassuring part of this. The ultra MAGA thing that I guess they dreamed up and focus group for six months was that Anita Dunn went and. Uh, that that brainchild was hers, I think. And she, oh yeah, ultra MAGA. This is what we're going to say. Uh, the president's approval rating has only gone down since he began that gambit. And if the Democrats were planning on the January sixth committee being some sort of game changer ahead of the election, that's also not happening. Happening. And I don't think that that's an indictment of the committee. I think the work and the facts are what they are, regardless of the political impact. But we know that the media and the Democrats, at least a lot of them, were hoping that it would change the course of the current election cycle. And predictably, that is not happening for some of the reasons that you and I have already discussed. And one of the telltale signs, Kim, in my mind, that it's not working, aside from the the polling itself and and all of the numbers, which are so crooked and bad uh, for the Democrats and for Biden especially, is the fact that you now have an increasing number of lefties coming out, talking much more openly and aggressively about whether Joe Biden really has what it takes to run again in 2024. It's like they're kind of, to some extent, throwing in the towel for this cycle and looking ahead to the next one, and they're already worried about that. And they're kind of like, you know, he's getting old. Is this something that we should really maybe think through? And, Kim, I I know you've been making this point a little bit as well. I mean, we all knew exactly how Joe Biden was and, and the way that he was operating and his age Two or three years ago, this has not been a state secret. You could just Google him on Wikipedia there. that There's his age. He's now pushing 80. It seems like all of a sudden a bunch of people on the left side of the aisle are discovering with shock that he's an older man who's slowing down. And now it can be said because their power is at risk. That seems to be the thread here. Yeah, you, you didn't even have to You just go and look at videos of him five years before that run. And it was so clear that he had lost a step. And by the way, no criticism uniquely of Joe Biden. You know, I hope that when I am near 80, that I am uh, had the stamina to do the job he's doing. It's a tough job. But there's no question that he's not necessarily where he was even five or six years ago. But none of us were allowed to talk about that in the run-up mm-hmm. to the 2020 election. It was taboo. It was ageist. It was offensive. And Everyone in the press gave him a a pass. He was allowed to sit in his basement, campaign from there, sheltered from any real aggressive uh, focus or or criticism. And what's frustrating now, Guy, is that they now want to suggest that the only reason they're in trouble is because Joe Biden doesn't have what it takes. They won't acknowledge it supposedly has nothing to do with an agenda. They're handling yeah, it's what he's done overspending. You know, it, it's their actions, not him. Um, and so this yep. is going to be their new excuse is that it's Joe Biden's fault. You know, and I actually kind of feel a little sorry for the guy in that. You know, they they kind of said you can be our one savior, and 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 you know they rolled him out and and teed him up for this, and now that he's apparently a, a problem, or they're just going to use him as an excuse and throw him overside. Yeah, the problem is not what Joe Biden can't do; the problem is what Joe Biden has done. That's sort of the bottom line for me, and that's what they can't really get around and don't really want to address. Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, also a Fox News contributor, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Kim, as always, thank you. Thanks, Guy. 
We will step aside and be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. As that sounder might suggest, here on The Guy Benson Show, we have an update about the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. So I had seen this story, I think it was last week, that a DNC fundraiser featuring the vice president had been postponed because they hadn't sold nearly enough tickets to make the fundraiser worth it. She was such a not draw that the DNC had to just reschedule the entire event because donors weren't willing to part ways with their money in exchange for a glorious evening with Kamala Harris with her keen and glittering insights and her beautiful mellifluous laugh, of course. So here's the update to that story. The DNC is now slashing prices. This is from Puck News. The DNC is slashing prices for a photograph with Kamala Harris at a fundraiser. So tickets to get in line and get a photo with the VP at a women's forum originally was supposed to cost $15,000 for that photograph. But it failed to generate enough interest and ticket sales. So the event has been postponed, and now it's going to be later on, and the price is now five grand. So it's dropped from fifteen grand to five grand. Well, at least we found one thing in America that has gotten less expensive under this administration. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour has arrived here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday right here. We appreciate your listenership. Thank you very much for that. If you missed the live broadcast between those hours, podcast is free of charge on demand each and every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. It's GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you need is right there, including that free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Catch me tonight on the TV side of things. Brett Baer will be hosting me and the panel around 6.45 p.m. Eastern on Special Report. That's Fox News Channel this evening, and I look forward to seeing you there. Fox News alert as we get going here this hour. The Dow surging significantly today, up 641 points, back above 30,000 at 30,530 at the close. With us now is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author of multiple books, including most recently, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to be with you. You know, I was with you last night. I, I wasn't next to you, but I was with you on Kennedy. That's right. And you That's look right. great, That's... as always. Well, I appreciate it, Juan. I did not have a return feed, so I cannot return the compliment. I will just say I'm sure you looked great. I couldn't see any of it. But well, I had one of my favorite red ties. 
No, 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 no. You're a young man. I'm not a young man. So I, I don't know about any guarantees on looks. But I must also add that today, as you're on Brett Baer's show, is going to be the longest day of the year, so everyone will have time to watch some TV. Oh, I love to hear it. And so just like longer sunlight hours is what you're saying. So I should maybe have dinner outdoors tonight because this is the longest day of the year, right? Is this, what do they call it, the solstice, the summer solstice? Summer solstice. You could go like to it's, people, I think, go to uh, Stonehenge or someplace. I, I, I don't know. know. They, I have no idea. Sorts of festivals and hippie things that people do to celebrate the longest day of the year. Well, if there's nothing that I love, Juan, it is hippie festivals. That's very much, uh, very much aligned with what I love to do in my free time. But now, now I'm thinking back to middle school. Because there are solstices and equinoxes, if or equi, uh, what's the plural? Yeah. Equini? I don't know. But is is it the summer, <laughs> the summer solstice and the winter solstice, and then the vernal and autumnal equinox? Is that right? Correct. Wow. Hey. Wait a minute. Were you a were wow. you a scholar? I think that you must have been a top student. I I was a good student. I don't know where exactly I pulled that out from, honestly, because I knew that two of them were solstices. And two of them were on the equinox side of things, but I couldn't quite remember what they were. And then I started saying the sentence to you out loud, and it just spilled out accurately, apparently, because whoever taught me that, was that maybe Miss Scott in sixth grade? I don't even know. But I it stuck somehow deep, deep, deep in the innards, the, the deepest recesses of my brain. They, they clung on to those brain cells. Well, you're going to get a call after the show, and I think it's going to be from Mrs. Scott. Okay, well, I I would very much welcome that, and I also almost want to clip that and send it over to the meteorologist team. I think Janice Dean would be proud of me for remembering that. So I just I just want credit here, credit where it's due. I was not a great student on math or science. I had to really try hard to get good grades, but I guess you know there is some retention uh, somewhere in there. Juan, I want to get your thoughts as a Democrat, as a liberal, on these January 6th committee hearings. We had Kimberly Strassel last hour. She gave her perspective, much of which I share, not all of it, but I think she and I mostly see eye to eye. I just wonder how you're feeling about them as you watch, um, what you think the impact will or will not be. How are these events and these proceedings striking you? Well, I'm I'm impressed. I must say, uh, you know, when this whole thing started, I thought – is this going to be shock and awe? Is it going to be like a TV show, you know, because they had brought in a TV producer? I, and, of course, you know, you you have to wonder, do they have anything new? Do they have anything that's going to help to shift my perception of this event, January 6th, which I thought was pretty untoward anyway? But, you know, they're going to have something there that I could say, oh, I didn't know that. Well, they've satisfied that. I, it's not shock and awe. In fact, at times they go very slowly, pedantically, but to me, convincingly. And and by the way, since you were talking to Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, I must say that reading the Wall Street Journal and other conservative publications, I've been struck that they don't dismiss what has been said in the panel Uh, in large part because they're hearing from people who were close to President Trump, people who were real conservatives, J. Michael Ludig, the renowned conservative jurist, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, 
Trump's own daughter. So in conservative media, there has been a certain degree of, hmm, well, I guess there is something to this. I, I guess if you're a Trump supporter, you might say, oh, those are rhinos that would have turned against the president or rhinos who are writing that, yes, the, the panel has something to say. But I think in all honesty, uh, at this point, except for the, you know, dyed-in-the-wool Trump people, and especially swing voters, if we're thinking politically, I think the committee has had some impact. Do you think it has – and I think that's debatable one way or the other, right? There have been some polls and, and some focus groups suggesting that people really aren't paying that much attention to it because a lot of it is – yeah, there's some new info, some new details, no question about it. I think a lot of it is really disgusting, and, and I've been really uh, turned off, uh, to put it lightly, by what happened on January 6th ever since it all played out and really in the lead up to it with all of the – lies and all of the conspiracies that were out there. I just don't know if there's enough new stuff there that people are saying, okay, this is a this is a an opportunity for me to reassess my vote in November. I just think there's probably a list of a dozen things that are more important to the American people than looking back at what happened last January who could stay who could you know say with their hand on the Bible, you know, I think this was bad. I think it shouldn't have happened. I agree that there should be an investigation and consequences. But in terms of the way that I'm going to be voting in November, I can care about this other stuff, but I care more about what's right in front of me and the cost of living and the cost of gasoline and buying groceries and that sort of thing. I wonder if you agree with that or if you think that this actually could change the uh, the electoral dynamic. Well, not overwhelmingly, because even as we were saying earlier, most Republicans still support President Trump, and the Trump base is indifferent to whatever the committee produces. They really, they're they're not watching or they're repelled by it, you know? I mean, when you stop and think about people like uh, Adam Schiff, who led the committee today, uh, people are going to be like, oh, I don't want to hear from that guy, and they they have all sorts of negative associations, right? And I, I personally agree with that. I, I think it's a mistake having him there. I don't think he's a credible person. You might disagree, but no, seeing I do disagree, his— but I understand your point. That was the one I'm, yeah, I'm like, to make, but yeah, they're not going to listen to that guy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if I'm not interested in Adam Schiff and his track record, and I think it's a bad one, then people who are even you know much more loyal to President Trump are going to be— completely dismissive of anything that he has to say. And I think having him up there as one of the faces of this is not productive from the Democrats' perspective. But, you know, these are the decisions that they made. This was Pelosi's call, and and she made that choice. I think ultimately, Juan, we have so many challenges facing us as a country right now, and there are so many really tough realities and headwinds for the party in power right now. We're in June by the time September, October rolls around, I, I don't know. It just It's hard for me to envision any of this stuff, as important or powerful as it might be, actually tipping the scales in very many elections at all, especially if the current circumstances uh, continue to be roughly where they are or perhaps deteriorate, right? Well, two things to, to make, two points to make, I should say. Number one, I think the Supreme Court ruling on abortion – uh, has the potential to energize Democratic voters in a way that they are not. 
Um, and even in recent polls, what I've noticed, the Wall Street Journal recently had one, previously the level of enthusiasm, Republican voters versus Democratic voters, was disproportionately favoring Republicans. Now it's about a three-point difference, and I don't know what that's about. I don't know if it was the leaked document on the abortion thing, but something has happened. The second thing to say is every midterm, uh, you know, you look at Clinton, you look at uh, Obama, you look at Trump, the incumbent usually gets hit. By the way, the exception there was Bush, but that was right after 9-11. Yeah, 9-11. Right. But in, historically, the incumbent gets trounced. Why? Because people say, you know what, I'm not happy with the direction of the country. I don't like that decision. I don't like that policy. It becomes a referendum on the incumbent. Now, if the January 6th committee is able to make any points with anybody, if you see the Republicans as radicalized, suddenly it becomes not a referendum election, but a choice election. And the Democrats say, are you really going to put Marjorie Taylor Greene? Are you really going to put uh, Lauren Boebert? Are you really going to put Matt Gates? Uh, in charge of everything, and we're just going to investigate Hunter Biden, and we're just going to go after and try to impeach President uh, President Biden, and we don't have any agenda, but boy, do we hate the Democrats. Is that what you want to vote for, America? Uh, you know, some people may say, oh, gosh, I, you know, I don't need the chaos back again. I don't need the midnight tweets back again. Yeah, I, I just think that's a stretch. I think they look at the chaos happening right now under a Democratic full control and say enough of this. I mean, I hated the tweets. I hated a lot of that drama, but I cannot handle these prices anymore. And we need a check and balance. We need a break on what they're doing in Washington, D.C., and that's what the Republicans represent. I mean, to your point, Juan, the reason that the incumbent president in that first midterm, his party almost always loses significant seats. In recent memory, the average has been about 24 seats is because a lot of people like the idea of checks and balances and some balance of power in Washington. They they like to see some gridlock. They say that they don't love gridlock, but ultimately they don't want one party just running roughshod and doing whatever they want. And so they like to put some roadblocks in there. That's the instinct of the electorate. I think that instinct will very much be in play this year, plus – the status quo in the country is so much worse on a lot of these major metrics than it is in, in your average midterm election, which is why I think this has the possibility of being extra bad for the Democrats. And I think if they're hanging their hopes on abortion and, and January 6th, I, I don't think that's going to work for them. I think the best they can hope for is having some really flawed Republican candidates, especially in Senate races. That might be uh, maybe their one ticket in all of this, because one – Last question to you on inflation, on gas prices. Do you think the White House's messaging is resonating? Like when you listen to them, does that work for you as a Democrat? Or are you sort of thinking, yeah, I don't know about this? I don't know about this. Uh, you know, I understand about Putin, but you know what? People pull up to the gas pump. They went, they, their leader is Biden. He's the guy that gets the grief and the gruff from them. But I, I understand that Putin, you know, is 10% of the world oil market. I understand that. But do I think that it, it's enough for the American people to not be upset at gas prices? No. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And when you have a lot of this blaming, which is what they're doing here, right? Putin this, oil companies that, I think ultimately, you know, the buck 
does stop with the people in charge. And, you know, at least if the Republicans had one House of Congress, maybe Biden could point over and say, oh, look, obstruction or whatever. But the Democrats control Washington, D.C. right now. And just the the way that these stars seem to be aligning would suggest that come November, it'll be a painful night for the Dems. And the question that we will, I guess, be debating in this line of work for the next five months or so is how painful will that be? And what could be some of the mitigating factors? And one of the people who helps us think those things through on a regular basis here on the show is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill. Juan, always enjoy it. Thank you very much. Happy long summer. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Longest day of the year in the summer solstice. Oh, I love that. All right. When we come back, I want to tell you about a Supreme Court ruling that came down today. There's been a really insane reaction to it on the left. I think they're wrong and the court got it right. Details next on The Guy Benson Show. It's The Guy Benson Show, a 6-3 victory today at the Supreme Court on religious liberty. The state of Maine has areas where there are no public schools available. We talked to Shannon Bream about this recently. No public schools. And so people living in those areas have the opportunity, the option, to take government-funded, taxpayer-funded vouchers and pay for private schools for their kids. But the state of Maine had been saying to these parents, you may not use these dollars to send your kids to religious schools that we think are too religious. It has to be non-sectarian only or else... It's a misapplication of the voucher. And there was a court case over this saying that this is discrimination against religious institutions. And the court, six to three, the conservatives against the liberals, agreed. And I read part of the dissents from Sotomayor and Breyer, and they were just not at all persuasive, very hostile to religion and supportive of outright discrimination against religion. That was their argument. Thank God there's only three of them on the court right now. And a lot of lefty commentators are losing their minds. Wajahat Ali says, well, they should have some Islamic schools and some Jewish schools and see if people can take advantage. It's like, well, actually, yes, that's what the Supreme Court decided. It's not just for Christians. A writer at Slate called this breathtakingly radical mischaracterizing what the court did. He said that the conservative majority holds that the First Amendment requires main taxpayers to fund explicitly religious education. But as Charles Cook points out in the decision itself, that's not what the justices ruled. Quote, a state need not subsidize private education, but once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. That's a very different thing. Then you had good old Jeffrey Tubin over at CNN saying that separation of church and state is a vanishing concept at the Supreme Court, and soon the Supreme Court is going to install, basically, a vouchers program nationwide, allowing kids to go to parochial schools or religious schools. Now, I personally wouldn't have a problem with that, but that's not what the court determined today. The court said in this one voucher program used by a few thousand kids in Maine, that program cannot discriminate against religious private schools. And then Tubin's like, oh, they're going to impose this universal voucher program across the country. Well, at least this time, Jeffrey Tubin is only publicly grasping at straws as opposed to other things. Chalk this up as what should have been a 9-0 decision in my view, but it was 6-3, to a victory for the First Amendment. 
and a loss to people who are deeply hostile to religion and people who have a deep misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the Establishment Clause and what the so-called separation of church and state actually entails. This is not the government setting up a religion, not even close. It's the government being unable to discriminate against religion once they've decided to hand out these kinds of vouchers. It's the Guy Benson Show, an outrageous update out of Uvalde, next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast always free. We return now to the issue of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, which we promised you we would not just let go of once it was no longer at the very top of mind when it comes to news cycles and public attention because there were so many unanswered questions that remained. And the pattern that we seem to witness on Uvalde is that with each substantive update about what happened in that school and the response to it last month, the situation somehow got worse. The details were more horrific, more angering, more frustrating. And that pattern held in a major way yesterday and today with new information coming out where some of the previous false or misleading stories given to us by the local police, it seems, have come crashing down. They were not true. There was testimony earlier in Austin, Texas, before the state Senate, offered by Stephen McCraw who is the director of the state's Department of Public Safety. We heard from him in one of those early press conferences where he got emotional. He was regurgitating, he was repeating some of the information that he was given when he arrived on scene, much of which was just false, inaccurate, outrageously so, in fact. Now that more information has come to light, Mr. McCraw is back before the cameras talking to state legislators, And absolutely calling out the local officials on the ground, and not by name but by title, the district chief, Mr. Arredondo, who has offered up a blizzard of excuses and conflicting explanations. He left his radio back behind on purpose because it was going to slow him down or make his shooting accuracy diminished or something like that. He's also claimed that he didn't realize that he was in charge, even though his title was chief and he was giving people orders on scene, reportedly. It seems like McCraw, who leads DPS in Texas, is so sickened and disgusted by what happened that we're not hearing any of the soft playing or airbrushing or euphemizing that sometimes we get from law enforcement trying to just trying to soften the blow a little bit when it comes to other law enforcement officials. That's what we often get. Thin blue line, officers stand with each other. I understand the culture. I understand why they do it. But when certain lines get crossed, clearly the righteous indignation takes over. 
And so McCraw, in this bombshell testimony, laid out exactly what happened, timeline, new details. Just listen to cut 25 here. The law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was a sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. Three minutes into this, they had sufficient manpower and firepower to put an end to this, to neutralize the killer and to start the process of saving lives and getting people who were still living on the other side of the door into ambulances and off to the hospital, where it seems increasingly likely, if not certain, that at least some of them could have been saved. Instead, they waited around for an hour on the say-so of this on-scene commander who has really spun quite a tale about what he did and what he didn't do. It is shocking to me that he still has his badge. It is shocking to me that he got sworn in in this newly elected political office that he won prior to the massacre. I don't know how this guy can show his face in that community, in that state ever again. Based on what we're learning now. And DPS is saying it was basically his actions, his decisions, his orders that led to this stunning, lethal inaction by heavily armed officers of the law. With teachers and students in grave danger, some of them bleeding and dying in a classroom. And it gets worse in cut 26 as McCraw continues. The officers had weapons. The children had none. The officers had body armor. The children had none. The officers had training. The subject had none. One error, 14 minutes and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. And while they waited, the on-seat commander waited for a radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. The post-Columbine doctrine is clear and compelling and unambiguous. Stop the killing, stop the dying. You can't do the former unless you do, you can't do the latter unless you do the former. A couple of things to drill down on here. The Texas Tribune got access to surveillance video from inside the school. And it shows that Uvalde officers were equipped to confront the shooter with guns and shields and tools, and they just didn't for more than an hour. Evidently, reportedly, because Arredondo told them not to. And if you look at some of the screenshots, the still shots from the hallway cameras, You have multiple grown men with huge rifles. They were not outgunned. They were not outmanned. They had powerful rifles. They had tactical gear. They had effectively combat shields. 
And based on some of these transcripts, there were officers basically begging to go in. They weren't allowed to do so. In the image that I just described, the overhead shot, multiple officers, big guns, big shields. One of them has this combat-style helmet on. A Texas Tribune reporter writes that that image of five armed law enforcement officers with ballistic shields in the school's sky-blue hallway was captured on surveillance footage at 12.04 p.m. local time. They would not enter the classrooms for another 46 minutes. So all this speculation that maybe they thought they were outgunned, so they were waiting for more equipment to arrive, they were waiting for a key to arrive. I'll get to that in a second. One by one, bit by bit, the edifice is crumbling. And all you have is not just an abject failure, in the words of McCraw, but a dereliction of duty. I don't know what else you can call it. On the key component, the locked doors, you might remember that Arredondo gave one of his rare interviews to a local news outlet a week or two ago, and he said that part of the delay was this excruciating process of testing one key after another from this huge ring of keys trying to find, I guess, the master key. And he said every time we would put a key in there, we would pray that it was the right one. Well, it turns out they were testing all of these keys on a different classroom door. And no one, based on the footage, no one ever checked to see if the classroom where the gunman was holed up had a locked door. Whether the door was even locked, whether they needed a key, whether they needed equipment to break through the door. And it turns out they didn't need a key. The doors to those classrooms were unlocked the whole time, and no one even twisted the knob or tried the handle. Some official had told the San Antonio Express News that, quote, both doors were locked. We now know, apparently, that that was not true. So was there a deliberate lie told to the media about that detail, or was that an assumption, a devastating assumption that was made, a false one? It's so bad, it almost sounds fake. But the failures, tragically, appear to be very real and piling up. And accountability must occur. I know there are some people I occasionally hear from you. Stop bagging on the cops. You weren't there. Well, we know more and more about what actually did happen. If you are so reflexively defensive of police that you're okay with all or any of this, I don't know what to tell you. I am very pro-law enforcement. When there's a failure this bad and children are dying and nothing is done for basically an hour and a bunch of lies are told to the public about it, including to the grieving families, we should be outraged. We should collectively say that is totally unacceptable. This is not representative of law enforcement writ large in this country. Criticizing terrible, unimaginable failures like this is not an attack on law enforcement, broadly speaking. It just isn't. But if you can't bring yourself to criticize this, then what are we doing? What's the standard? 
If someone has a badge, they can do no wrong. Come on. And by the way, you know that there are law enforcement officials in this community, not just at the state level, local level, who are sick and furious about this. I would not be surprised if they were responsible for leaking some of this stuff to the media. Because some of the powers that be in Uvalde are trying very hard to cover things up. They're limiting the opportunity for news organizations to get body cam footage. They are limiting public comment, for example, last night at a school board meeting where they had a very finite period of time where only a few people could make very short remarks. They were shooing people out of the building and going into closed session. I understand that in the wake of something like this, Things can get very ugly and heartbreaking, and it's hard to imagine being thrust into that sort of position. That being said, there's a difference between sensitivity and shock and a cover-up. And much of this smells, reeks distinctly of a cover-up. The New York Times reporting this about the testimony we played snippets from. The outline presented by Mr. McCraw confirmed details first reported by the New York Times over a series of articles during the past month, including that the officers who first arrived inside the school two minutes after the gunman had AR-15-style rifles that could have been used against the gunman, that a school district police officer informed other officers at 11.48 a.m. that his wife, a teacher, had been shot but was still alive inside the classroom providing them with a clear indication that people inside the classroom were in urgent need of help and that shields that could have been used to protect officers making an entry into the classroom had arrived outside that classroom before 12 p.m., nearly an hour before officers finally went in. McCraw also presented new details, such as the exact time that Chief Arredondo went into the school, 11.36 a.m., three minutes after the gunman entered the classrooms and started firing, Timeline also noted that by 11.54 a.m., a Texas Ranger was inside the school, one of at least 12 members of the state police who responded between the time when the gunman began shooting in classrooms at 11.33 a.m. and when the officers killed him at 12.50 p.m. And in response to questions from a state senator about the locks on classroom doors, McCraw said there had been requests about fixing the classroom door locks. A teacher thought that the lock was broken, he said, which was part of this testimony that, in fact, the doors weren't locked after all, and no one bothered to check. We also learned that there were at least two shots fired inside the classrooms while the cops were out in the hallway, and that they knew that there were people still alive, some of them shot and bleeding, on the other side of what turned out to be an unlocked door, and they did nothing paralyzed under the direction of this on-scene commander, for roughly an hour. And at least one person succumbed in an ambulance being transported to the hospital, others at the hospital. And as I said, it's hard to escape the conclusion that if the correct protocols had been followed, if law enforcement had done its job in a timely, urgent manner, lives that were stolen could have been saved. And so this trajectory continues, each update somehow worse than the last. It is clear that there are members of the law enforcement community who are seethingly angry about what happened. 
you can only imagine what some of these families must be feeling. And I think independent of anyone's feelings or political beliefs, there should be a united cry for accountability, given the lack of action and then the torrent of untruths sprayed at the general public in the wake of all of this. It is sickening. It is revolting. You just imagine your child bleeding out while this heavily armed and armored throng of law enforcement stood just a few feet away, waiting around until it was too late for some of these people. You get the feeling that there is going to be hell to pay, and there ought to be. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I saw this on Twitter earlier. A woman named Christy Clark, who has a blue check mark. She's running for state level office in North Carolina. She lists her pronouns in her Twitter bio. She tweeted at Harris Teeter and Kroger, which is a grocery chain. I am disappointed to see these koozies are being sold in a North Carolina store. 110 Americans die every day from gun violence. And most recently, children, educators, health care providers and family members were killed in mass shootings. Please remove them. And she took photos of these koozies for beers. One of them is a bald eagle holding what looks like a shotgun, says, give me liberty or give me death. Another one is a founding father with a gun. It says, arms change, rights don't. Then red, white, and blue, star-spangled, all this stuff. So this would-be public official, a candidate, took photos, complained about it, tagged this big grocery chain in the tweet, and Harris Teeter replied, Thanks for reaching out, Christy. As soon as these items were brought to our attention, we put a recall request into place, and these items are being removed from all store locations. We appreciate your concern. They just caved that fast to one whining person, one Twitter Karen. So I was just curious, can I get stuff banned at their stores? Like one disappointed tweet at a time. What's the policy here? Can I do that? What about the price guns at the checkout counter? That's awfully dangerous potentially triggering can we get rid of those and make things free what do you say harris teeter what do you say kroger do my disappointed tweets count or not how does this work it's ridiculous the brands need to log off and stop kowtowing to these types of people enough final hour of the guy benson show coming up straight ahead stay here It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Tuesday. Welcome in. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge, on demand every single day after the show is over, a little less than an hour from right now, approximately. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and company. That is around 6.45 Eastern time on Fox News Channel this evening. Hope to see you there. 
And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our friends over there. They are expanding, really sweeping across the country, now in roughly 40 states, up from just 17 last year. And it's just popular. It's a delicious product. It is alcoholic, so 21-plus only for this crisp citrus soda with a premium liquor kick. Always drink responsibly. Find out where it's sold near you at thelongdrink.com. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Joining me now is Kent Strang, who's the managing director for Americans for Prosperity, and they have something that they have launched now weeks ago called the True Cost Campaign. And I think it's very clever, and it's making some waves in the communities where they are showing up and pulling what is sort of a stunt, but it's really, I think, illustrating how bad things have gotten on the gas price front and bringing some contrast into very clear focus. Kent, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me, Guy. I appreciate it. Please just describe for us, bare bones, basics, what is the true cost campaign that Americans for Prosperity has put together, and then we'll get into sort of the reaction to it. Absolutely. Americans for Prosperity launched the true cost of Washington campaign in April, and what we're trying to do is show Americans struggling with inflation and higher prices at the gas pump and at the grocery store that Washington's top-down policies are really to blame for the economic crisis. And so what does this campaign entail exactly? Sure. So we're traveling all over the country, having events, talking about inflation, talking about gas prices and higher prices across. And But the primary event that's getting the most attention is we're going to gas stations and we're dropping the price down from that national average of around $5 all the way down to $2.38. And folks might be asking, why $2.38? What's the significance of that? And it might be hard to believe, but that was the nationwide average of a gallon of gas the day President Biden took office. We want to show Americans exactly how damaging his policies have been when it comes to the pain they're feeling at the pump. So the average cost of a gallon of gasoline on January 20th, 2021, was $2.38. It has now more than doubled. Here we are in June of 2022, roughly $5 a gallon nationwide, even higher some places. I saw a viral photo earlier today. It was a 7-Eleven attached to a gas station where you had the 7-Eleven logo of the convenience store, and underneath it was the cost of a gallon of gasoline, which was, in fact, $7.11, which is just extraordinary in the United States. So you guys show up at these places. You, what, subsidize the cost of gasoline where people can drive up and pay two thirty-eight a gallon back like they did on the first day of the Biden administration. You guys pay the difference to the exactly gas station? Right. Is that how it works? That's exactly right. And we cap it at about two hours because, as you can imagine, the uh, the line becomes a mile or two long. Folks are very eager and sometimes desperate to get, you know, those those gallons of gas at that discounted rate. And guy, the, the stories that we hear are inspiring and heartbreaking uh, and, and you hear it all. And, and so if, I'd love to tell you some stories of the folks that we meet and, and the impact of what gas prices are doing. Yeah, I'm just I would love to hear that. I'm just still trying to envision exactly how this works, because it's again, it's an amazing idea. You guys work it out in advance. You agree to pay the difference. And of course, this whole push has gotten more and more expensive for AFP as gas has gotten more and more expensive. But I think it's also probably gained more attention and interest 
because people are hurting. The pain has gotten worse for them. So do they put up on their big sort of billboard outside the gas station? With the marquee, yes, absolutely. Yeah, with with so the marquee a- that changes every day, do you have them bring that digital number down to 238? We sure do. Every single station, they change the marquee down from the current price to 238. And sometimes they do it manually where they have to drop the number down by penny. And it seems to take longer and longer to drop it down to wow. 238 each and every time we do it. So uh, definitely visit our website at Americans for Prosperity to see, um, see some videos of those, those prices dropping. And then does word just get out organically? Do you guys advertise this or do people just start calling their friends or texting their friends? Dude, I was just at this BP station down on whatever road. Gas is at half price right now for some reason. Get down here. How does this work exactly? Because you said the lines get very long very quickly. All of the above. So we do a media release because we want television crews to come so we can talk about what we're doing and connect folks to why we're doing it. But also, as as soon as that line opens, it's um, mad dash on, on cell phones to text their friends and their neighbors and encourage them to get in line. Now, the, the problem is when people are lining up hours in advance, sometimes we don't get through to absolutely everybody. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a, they're the pretty wild events that, that I would encourage everybody to come and check out because there's, again, long lines, folks anticipating it, calls, you name it, folks are trying to get gas at, at this rate, which was pretty common a year and a half ago. Yeah, I, I understand, right? People are struggling right now. So if they have this respite, whatever the reason might be, they want to be there. They want to take advantage of it. What are you hearing from some of these people? Because I'd imagine there's probably some conservatives who are like, hey, this is great for me. Plus, you're making a point about Biden and the energy policies. I love this. There are probably some other folks who are apolitical or even left-leaning who might not be in love with your mission at Americans for Prosperity, but they also can't really argue with the savings that you're providing by making this point and illustrating it the way you are. What's the reaction that you're getting sort of across the board from people? Across the board, the reaction is incredibly positive. You know, folks understand what we're doing and why, and we try to connect them to that. But more, more importantly, folks know that Washington has failed them. Washington has had out-of-control government spending. They put red tape all over. So it makes energy costs more expensive. I mean, folks are, are really connected to Washington has caused this problem and by overwhelmingly supportive of, of what we're doing. Have you had any examples where a leftist shows up for the savings, then realizes it's some sort of conservative stunt and they refuse to pay the cheaper price? <laughs> that has not happened. <laughs> huh. Isn't that interesting? Hasn't happened. Ultimately, it really does come down to dollars and cents for people. So you've been doing this since April. This has been going on for months. As I said, the price has just been ticking, ratcheting up because of what's happening across the whole country and refinery issues, supply issues, everything that we've been discussing on this show for a while. How long are you guys going to keep doing this? I know that you've got some dates coming up in Virginia, in Nebraska, in Pennsylvania, in Missouri. How are you selecting the places to go And how long do you plan to continue this campaign? Well, we'll continue the campaign until energy, until Washington gets the message on energy prices. And so we continue to go for for as long as we can. And and you're right. We're going to be uh, on Wednesday. We're going to be in Omaha, outside of Omaha, outside of Pittsburgh, in Kansas City. And then on Thursday, we'll be in Fisherville, Virginia. And so this really comes down to finding station owners predominantly independently owned stations that want to partner with us. And so 
Um, we have a number of places that we're going to go. We're going to continue all summer long and drop gas prices and roll back prices as often uh, as we can across the country. Do you ever get local officials, congressmen, governors even interested saying, hey, I want in on this. This is making an important point. I oppose the policies of the administration. Let me show up and talk to voters. How has that looked? Sure. We have had members in their congressional, in their official uh, capacity. We had uh, Congressman LaHood and Congressman Davis of, of Illinois. And I believe tomorrow in Omaha, the Governor Ricketts will be there with us. And so members of the Hill and elected officials are certainly interested in, in this and talking to their constituents about the prices and what Washington can do to bring them down. Yeah. I mean, I just think it is so smart to do it this way. It's so stark. It's not ancient history. January of 21 was not that long ago, 238 a gallon. And look, I get it. I've said it repeatedly. Some of this stuff is outside of anyone's control, any president, any administration. It's a global commodity. But some of the policies, independent of disruptions in Ukraine and Russia, anything like that, these are problems being caused by the government and by bad policies. They can try to blame and wriggle out of this all they want. People are experiencing in their lives this reality and it's a very difficult one it's a deeply unaffordable one that's regressive for a lot of people hurting people who can afford it the least and you guys are bringing just a little bit of relief while also making a pretty potent point at the same time at americans for prosperity in this true cost campaign so keep your eyes peeled in your community maybe you can go to afp's website and find out where this might be coming to your community if you have that one opportunity to fill up for a non-astronomical sum are you guys passing out literature or anything like that sure absolutely they can visit the true cost of washington.com to find locations to learn more and guy you talked about how it's impacting those who are the least fortunate when we were in fredericktown missouri we met lisa lisa is a cancer patient and she drives over a hundred miles round trip to St. Louis for her treatments for her care. And she's spending, Mm -hmm. she told us she's spending $120 per week for treatment. And Missouri is a relatively low um, cost for for gas in that state. But when you couple that with the grocery prices that she's paying, she and her family are barely getting by. And it's heartbreaking stories of of folks who are really struggling with day-to-day costs of groceries and gas. And um, it's important to hear and share those stories and with our elected officials and, and policymakers. She's spending 120 bucks a week just to get to and from her treatments. Yes. Oh, I mean, that is that is tough. And that's one of those stories that you need to think about. And I think that policymakers need to think about this isn't academic. This isn't just a political storm of pointing fingers. This is affecting real people in very real and tough ways. So I think that the way that this is being highlighted Very clever. AFP, Americans for Prosperity, I think doing a really good job, probably driving certain people crazy because they don't want people to have this juxtaposition so clear. But it is what it is. And I hope you guys keep it up, Kent. It's a really good idea. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me on. And we'd love to have you at an event with us sometime. Yeah, I would love to see this. It It sounds pretty crazy. And it sounds, in its own way, fun. It's almost like this quick throwback that you can experience for two hours only, courtesy of Americans for Prosperity and their True Cost campaign. Kent Strang, we appreciate your time, and we will take a quick break. We will be right back on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Guy Benson will be right back.
Back here on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. Thanks for being here. I wanted to make sure that we got to this. Bill Maher over at HBO had another fun, rollicking, delectable monologue on Friday's show. And before we got too far afield from last Friday, I want to play at least a few clips from it because it touches on a controversy that we covered here a few different times while it was still raging. That whole meltdown at the Washington Post over tweets. Now, one of the people involved, Taylor Lorenz, is still at the Post and is still doing what she does on Twitter. This week, sucking up a lot of oxygen and drawing attention to herself, scolding another left-leaning journalist for joking about his own COVID diagnosis in a way that is unacceptable to her. She's just ever the class scold, waiting to tisk tisk at someone. That's her whole business model. So she's still doing her thing over at the Washington Post, but her colleague Felicia is out, but not before a lot of embarrassment to the institution itself and the organization. And Marr wanted to make sure that people who may have missed it knew what happened. Here's part of how he described it in Cut 18. Nevertheless, Weigel pulled down his retweet and wrote, I apologize and did not mean to cause any harm. And that was the end of that. I'm joking, of course. (laughs) The unlicensed daycare center that is today's newsroom went apeshit. You see, the Post has another writer named Felicia Sanmez, and she's a lot. (laughs) For example, she tweeted about Kobe Bryant's 2003 rape trial hours after his helicopter crash. And despite the fact that she says Dave Weigel is a good friend, she resurrected the tweet he had taken down with a screenshot and demanded to know what the Post was going to do about this unacceptable evil that must not be allowed to stand. Sarcastically writing, fantastic to work at a news outlet where tweets like this are allowed. Yes, can you imagine a world that allows jokes you don't like? He went on and cut 20. For days, she raged with the fire of a thousand burning bras. (laughs) Sending a gazillion tweets calling for more to be done against Weigel, mocking her bosses, attacking colleagues, and letting the world know how much the Washington Post sucked. And this endless bickering and infighting continued online in public view until the bell rang and they all went to seventh period. (laughs) Now, note that I haven't yet told you what age Felicia Sanmez and her quarreling co-workers are. Why? Because I didn't have to. (laughs) Because you can't imagine someone my age acting like this in an office. The New York Times just ran an op-ed entitled, Why Are We Still Governed by Baby Boomers? This is why. (laughs) Because too many millennials are overly sensitive, overly fragile, and have no sense of priorities. You know, I'm sure many boomers would love to retire, but they can't. They're like the grandmother, who'd much rather be watching Judge Judy, but has to raise her grandkids because her own kids are too f***ed up to manage it. He went on to call some of the younger generations unhirable with bad, short attention spans and poor work ethics. He said that there are major exceptions. He said there are good millennials. He said he knows this because he's friends with the good ones. I would like to self-identify as a good millennial on this front. And then Marr sort of wrapping up this soliloquy said this in Cut 23. Aren't you uh, supposed to be reporters digging up stuff? Are there no more vital issues going on in America right now? This is why you're not in charge. 
Because if someone named Deep Throat called the paper today and wanted to meet in a parking garage, this crew of emotional hemophiliacs would have an anxiety attack and report it to HR that they didn't feel safe. If there is a silver lining to this story, it's that eventually the Post did fire Felicia Sanmez. So maybe there is a line that's just too much nonsense. But that generation needs to move that line much closer to sanity and find it much sooner. Because democracy dies in dumbness. Oh, I mean, straight into my veins. And the fact that there was finally accountability for her, you couple that with what happened at SpaceX this week, with the mob that tried to disown and call out their boss, got summarily fired. Then you add in Netflix recently sending out a memo to their employees saying, if you have a problem with content and you can't handle being around content that you personally don't like, maybe this isn't the place for you to work anymore. Maybe, just maybe, this confluence of events, maybe we're in a moment, perhaps, that the tide is starting to turn. If that's the case, I welcome it with open arms. And if it takes more scorching diatribes like this from Bill Maher to help us get there, sign me up. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy Hour here on The Guy Benson Show in our first hour we welcome back to the program Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal and a Fox News contributor. Much to get to always with Kim. Here's part of that conversation. What are your takeaways? How do you feel about them? And then we can start to shift over to the point that you're making in your latest column, uh, sort of branching out from just the focus on January 6th. Yeah, sure. I've been watching the January 6th, too, pretty closely, the hearings pretty closely. And I... I guess the way I would think of it is I think that they have served as a very good reminder with some additional details of the pretty indefensible actions, as you say, that were taken by Trump and his team in the lead up. And then the also the failure to act while this riot was unfolding. And some of those details have been really important. They fill in some blanks. At the same time, I feel as though the broad arc of this, the broad narrative, is something that we've kind of had since the days following January 6th. We, I remember a, it was only a few days after all of this happened. The Washington Post had a story detailing how long the president just sat there despite all of these people calling him and exhorting him to stand up and say something and do something to stop this, and he wouldn't do it. So we're now getting more information about all of that. Uh, do I feel as though any of it has cosmically changed my understanding of what happened? No, but you know, I do think that there is some merit to presenting some of this information. Yeah, and I think that we had the immediate aftermath and response. Then we had the impeachment and the impeachment trial where we got a lot more of this stuff. And now it feels like kind of like the third Trump impeachment trial almost is is how this feels to me. And I'm not saying that any of this is good. A lot of it is quite bad. And in fact, they were again chatting with Brad Raffensperger, who's 
the secretary of state in Georgia testifying exactly what he said. Of course, there was that phone call where Trump was pressuring him to find votes, find ballots, the certain number that he felt like he needed to take the lead in the state. This whole business about alternate slates of electors and the the Eastman memo, which was just crazy at the time. It was all very bad. And I think some Republican complaints about the committee are actually the fault of Republicans who are refusing really to participate. Kevin McCarthy didn't get all of his people that he requested onto the committee, so he pulled them all off. And so as a result, there's sort of no one offering any other side to this stuff. Uh, There was a commission offered that would have been bipartisan. The Republicans rejected that. I'm not really going along with the overall right-wing narrative on this committee, but I also tend to agree with you that I am sometimes again outraged by what I see, but not in a new way. It's as bad as I thought it was at the time, if that makes sense. And that's that's not yeah. an excuse. It's just sort of how I feel. It, it, it does make sense. I guess here are my two additional concerns with this is that I think the details are very informative, a lot of them. Um, But I also feel as though one of the purposes of this committee, which Democrats have been able to do because Republicans, uh, by and large, or at least those who have a different view on some of this, did not take part. But there's a a real effort, which you see by Schiff and others, to portray the entire Republican movement as somehow extremist um, and unhinged. Uh, radical. And I, I kind of I, I would love to kind of push back on that because there's a political element of this, which is really showing through. This is also about the midterms. Um, they also seem to be spending a great deal of time laying the groundwork for a potential criminal referral of Donald Trump and potentially others to the Department of Justice. For legal reasons, I think that that's a very hard sell and not necessarily something Congress should be doing, um, uh, especially when we have and a they lot actually of other sound, And they sound split on whether that's what they want the goal ultimately to be. That's been some of the reporting. There's some dissension within the ranks on that. And by the way, they just gaveled out, it looks like. For the day. So they are in adjournment. They're going to have additional conversations and hearings uh, moving forward here. There was one quote from Rudy Giuliani that was presented today talking about the supposed stolen nature of the election. And Rudy had said, quote, we've got lots of theories. We just don't have any evidence. That was a quote from Rudy. And Mick Mulvaney, The former Trump chief of staff at the White House said that, ladies and gentlemen, was the head of the president's legal team. Again, that seems significant. It goes to my point that if they had proof of these outlandish claims, they could have offered it in court. They failed to do so over and over and over again, which is why I just completely reject this notion that the election was stolen, that Biden's win was illegitimate. Now, with that being stipulated, and I think it's important to stipulate it, Kim, you are also sort of drawing attention to some of the, shall we say, selective attention and outrage to political violence in our media, among Democrats, within sort of the the ruling class, where some examples of it are a grave concern and a deep threat to the republic itself, whereas other instances and manifestations of political violence are basically ignored, indulged, even winked at. Right. This is the off-key part of these hearings to me, which is, again, great that we're having some details, 
But there's very much a political desire to present all of this as coming from one side. You know, all the video and see, look, this is what this is what the Republican Party has become. And the real risk to the Republic guy is that, in fact, we are seeing rising levels of political violence on all sides um, and in growing frequency as well, too. We have had just in the in the past uh, month or so, ever since the leak of the draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade from the Supreme Court, uh, we've had at least 24 attacks on pregnancy centers and pro-life groups. Some of them have been firebombed. Um, there have been threats left on the doors. Uh, we obviously in recent weeks had an attempted assassination attempt on Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Um, this obviously follows shootings of you know, the congressional baseball practice in 2017, Charlottesville, Antifa, uh, uh, shootings in synagogues, um, the assassination of cops. Um, we're increasingly getting a number of people on the fringe in both parties who believe that the answer to their political frustrations is to engage in violence. And we do not have enough politicians broadly calling attention to that or indeed setting the example saying enough. We cannot tolerate this in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, what the media will say and others will point out about January 6th is that political violence was particularly egregious in nature because of how many people took place in that riot or took part rather in that riot. And the purpose of the riot was to interrupt the process that is sacred in this country of the transition of power that has to be peaceful in America. And so I think that's a fair point. It was especially bad. But you also then, Kim, get people who are willing to excuse for the entire summer leading up to the election or sort of turn away and avert their eyes to a lot of violence that played out across the country. The president of the United States, the current one, has still not personally condemned the assassination plot against the Supreme Court justice that you just mentioned. It just really does feel like half of it is ignored, memory hold, downplayed. We actually gave an example. There's a Democratic member of Congress who was shot in the line of duty, if you will, Back in the 70s, when she was a political staffer in the Jonestown massacre, which is a wild story. If people have never heard of it, you should look it up. It's just a crazy thing that happened. She gave a speech last week, I believe, on the floor saying that she thought she was the only member of the House who had been targeted with gun violence. Just forgetting about the Scalise shooting and, and that attempted mass assassination because it was given such short shrift by the people who – are aghast by this stuff, but only really loudly aghast some of the time. And I think it's hard to take them seriously. It's also hard to take Democrats seriously when they're this angry about January 6th and then their political operations are going and meddling in Republican primaries to try to boost conspiracy theorists on this stuff because they think it would be easier to beat them in the fall. It's either a threat to democracy or it's not. And some of the actions feel like they don't even believe what they're saying themselves. Right. And part of this and what's so frustrating about it to me, Guy, is it is so nakedly political. As you just said, there are those attempts, for instance, uh, to boost certain uh, more fringe candidates in some of these Republican primaries. My full interview with Kimberly Strassel of The Wall Street Journal and one of our colleagues here at Fox, it's available on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have the interview isolated 
at GuyBensonShow.com as well. So that's an option. When we come back, the home stretch, an update on producer Christine's husband's birthday. Did he make it to the party over the weekend? Plus a flashback of the way things used to be when you wanted to go to the movies. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday. Thank you for tuning in. Catch me on Special Report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and company coming up in the next hour on Fox News Channel. Our website here at the radio show, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every single day. Well, this is something that we talked about last week. And producer Christine was very concerned about whether her husband, Bobby, was going to make it out of Texas, where he was on a business trip, back to the East Coast in time to attend his own 40th birthday party. She had a whole dinner planned at a casino. This had been a lot of work for her, and it was unclear if he was even going to make it. And so with all that being said, Christine, what actually ended up happening? I did not get a bunch of panic texts from you over the weekend, so I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that he was able to catch a flight and the party occurred as planned. Yes? Yes, you guessed correctly. So my freak out was all for nothing. Are you surprised by that? I'm not. But I can understand at least the concern over something that was totally out of your control. But yeah. what? He was able to get on a flight? He, yeah, he got on a Friday flight. Friday night? Mm-hmm. Friday night. So he, uh, you know, he was exhausted. He got in pretty late Friday night. And then we got up Saturday morning and then went to... Um, it's kind of like Atlantic City, but it's in Connecticut, Foxwoods. Have you ever been? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I've not been, but it's a casino-type resort place, right? Yeah, and they have a nice pool, and they have, like, a whole bunch of things going around, you know, going on, and then they have really nice restaurants, and we— Did you Did you gamble? Yes, yes. I should not have even asked. Of course we, I did. Oh, we, I love gambling. Who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with Christine. Did you win or did you lose? No, no, I lost. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, Bobby why do I ask these questions. I already know the answer to the questions. Did you gamble? Yes. Did you lose? Yes. It's just like very obvious. But you were looking forward to the big dinner at a David Burke restaurant. We were talking about David Burke recently because I met him on the set of Mornings with Maria. How was the dinner? The much ballyhooed, highly anticipated dinner. It was unbelievable. Um, that man really knows how to make a steak and he sure knows what to do with bacon. It was delicious. We ordered everything, like every appetizer you can imagine. Everybody had steaks, plenty, and I mean plenty of cocktails were had, and we just had Mm -hmm. a really, really nice time. Bobby's not big into the, you know, birthday party kind of thing, so I kind of kept it low-key, but some people made some speeches. He got up and made a toast thanking everybody for coming there and thanking me, and then uh, after that, we kind of divided up. Bobby and a couple of the guys went to go play, uh, was it called, craps? Mm-hmm. And my sister-in-law, Bobby's sister, and I just went and danced the night away. Was there a nightclub? There was a nightclub, and it was so sad because it was early. It was only like 9 o'clock, and we're just waiting there, <laughs> and nobody is really in the club yet. And I had to go up to the DJ and I said, excuse me, are you going to play music soon? He's like, it's pretty early. Hang tight. Felt like a loser. What time did you finally get to bed? Was it a late night or did you get a few songs in and you're like, okay. Yeah, we just got got a few songs in, got a couple kamikaze shots, felt like I was in college again. And then I think I was sound asleep by 1145. 
did Bobby, most importantly, have a good time for his birthday weekend? He truly did. Bobby's like a Bobby's a real family guy. He's not a guy that has a group of a huge group of friends. You know, he has his Boston for his Boston's friends, and they all call him up, Bobby, Happy Birthday guy. Um, they, you know, like he's just not a big partier, big group person. So he was really happy to be with his sister and his mom and his dad and me and a couple of his buddies. And he, I think he really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad it worked out because it was touch and go there for a while with the flights and all the delays happening. But he made it. You made it. Congratulations. Sounds like a success overall. Meanwhile, you and I were talking about this earlier I saw on social media a woman, probably I would say, what, in her early 40s maybe, had made a video on TikTok where she was explaining to younger people what you had to do back in the day if you wanted to go see a movie. And I definitely remembered this. This was before the Internet was prevalent. This was before smartphones, certainly. If you wanted to know what movie theaters were playing which movies – You could maybe find it in the newspaper sometimes, or you'd have to call the theater and listen to a recording, and they would go through the whole recording of each movie in alphabetical order and each showtime, and you would try to jot them all down very quickly. Then you'd have to go talk to your parents. These are the options. Can I please do this? Can I get a ride there or whatever? And then I also thought of movie phone. Did you do movie phone? Do you remember movie phone? I sure do, of course. I mean, that is how you got your movie times. There was a very funny Seinfeld episode, actually, where Kramer poses as the movie phone guy. But for people of a certain generation, under a certain age, movie phone is such an anachronism. It's something that they would just look at you cross-eyed as you try to explain it to them. You would have to dial up, I believe, an 800 number. might have been 800 movie phone, something like that, with an F. And then that guy, the voiceover guy, hello, and welcome to Movie Phone, brought to you by the New York Times and Hot 97. And if you know the name of the movie you would like to see, press 1, and you would go through this entire process, this automated process, just to find out what theaters were playing which movies. And it was sometimes quite time-consuming. And this video just struck a chord with me because I'm old enough of the older millennial era to absolutely have had no choice but to do this many times in my childhood. And I just feel like if Quiet Wyatt were not on vacation, young 21-year-old Quiet Wyatt, although almost 22, he's down at Disney World right now, he's probably on the rides. He strikes me as one of the guys who goes on all the rides and then pays exorbitant sums for the action photo where you're screaming with the person next to you and then you go down after the ride and you pay God knows how much it is now, 20 bucks to have this image sent to you or probably now emailed to your phone or whatever. But in every photo, like he's about to go over on Splash Mountain and he's just sitting there reading the Wall Street Journal. He's got a hard copy of the journal. That's what I envision his Disney experience to be like. But if he were here in studio today, not on vacation, I would love to see his reaction as we describe movie phone to him. Because I guarantee you that is not something that has been a part of his life. And if you're a young listener, you learn something new. And if you're a listener of a certain age, you're like, yep. And that's a pretty good movie phone impression, guy. And thank you. And you're welcome.
Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place here on the radio. And then TV tonight, special report with Brett Baer around 645 Eastern. So coming up in the next hour, Fox News Channel. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.